Okay, what I'd like to do is tell you about faith, science, reflections on chemical mechanisms in Darwinian evolution. Let me just tell you that this is not a, a typical topic for me. I don't particularly enjoy speaking about things of evolution, and I've, I've talked about that on my website, because I don't think that, that speaking about this draws anybody closer to Jesus. And this is why I don't particularly enjoy doing it. Nonetheless, it's, it's, it's something that, that uh, uh, might settle some hearts and, and uh, dispel some confusions, or at least, uh, um, if you see my perspective, uh, um, you, you, you'll see that I'm settled where I am. Maybe you will leave more confused today. I'd like to start by, by just mentioning that I work in this area of nanotechnology, and it's a little too small to really have you... Any, anywhere back to really appreciate what's here. I'm only going to, to uh, um, actually talk about one thing here, just to mention that we work in a broad array of nanotechnologies, everything from medicine, working on traumatic brain injury and stroke with my colleagues across the street from Rice at the, at the medical center there, uh, working on films and, and surfaces for, for spacecraft with NASA. Uh, we do a lot with uh, capture of CO2, um, uh, trying to reduce the amount of CO2. So whether CO2 is an anthropogenic problem or not, whether it's a human problem or not, it's a political football and we have to deal with it. And so uh, learning how to reduce that. Uh, we make a lot of transistors and supercapacitors and alternative energy devices, batteries, uh, uh, fuel cells, working in areas like that. Um, I'll just mention one area, that's these nano cars. These are individual cars that we make that have axles and wheels and motors, and each car is so small that we can park about 30,000 of them across the diameter of a human hair, so they're extremely small. Uh, and and we, we make not just one or two at a time, we make about 10 to the 23rd at a time, 10 to the 23rd is a very big number. So one with 23 zeros after it. That's how many we make at a time. And we shine a light on it, and this motor will start to rotate so that it, it can push this along a surface. And we like to try to monitor the motion, learning how to do construction eventually. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll show you what we, we plan to do. Well, why nanomachines, for example? Why would we work in an area of nanomachines? And I don't know, why Mona Lisa? Why? What, what, what's the application of Mona Lisa? Well, she really doesn't do much of anything except make us feel real, really nice to, to be able to look at this. And this was a, a lifelong work of, of Leonardo da Vinci and, and uh, really interesting. The way he made the eyes a little bit crooked so it doesn't matter where you are, it looks like she's looking right at you. Uh, so just to be able to think of something that's, that's uh, um, scientifically interesting doesn't have to have an application to be doing this in, in, in the academy. Nonetheless, it certainly has applications. So, for example, this is a tree. Uh, if we want to make, say, a, a, a table or something, we would cut down this tree and we would make a table. So, you, this is a top-down fabrication method. You cut down a tree, you make a table. That's top-down. That's generally how human beings make things, from the top down. If you think about it, though, Everything in nature, the way God works, is generally built from the bottom up, including you and me. And so, <clears throat> these are made from, from, trees are made from a seed, 
seed goes and makes a tree. You don't just get some larger tree and chisel it out and make a smaller tree. That's not the way it's done. So it behooves us to really understand how this might be done. How might we be able to to build from the bottom up? And that's what we envisioned with nanomachines. Could we just take atoms or carbohydrates and use nanomachines to build a table? You know, could this be something that we might eventually do? Uh, or, or could we, could we uh, eventually build buildings this way? So the vision for this is we learn how to take small molecules, atoms, and assemble them using nanomachines because everything in nature has been made from the bottom up, including you and me. And so, so uh, uh, what happens is you, you eat, say, a bagel this morning, and then this afternoon, that's a part of your ear. How does that happen? You have these little nanomachines called the enzymes that break down those carbohydrates and then apply it where it's needed in construction. These are little nanomachines that do this enzymatically. And so this is, this is what happens biologically. And so what we want to be able to do is, is, is mimic this ex vivo, outside of an environment of, of a living entity. So that in 100 years or 200 years, could we build skyscrapers this way? Because the sophistication, the electronic sophistication in a blade of grass, the, the biological sophistication in a blade of grass is more than the sophistication that's built in the construction of these buildings. And so uh, could we build things? And they can actually be built rather quickly. There are some strains of grass that grow two feet tall in a single day. If we increase that by an order of magnitude, that'd be 20 feet tall in a single day. That's faster than we normally build. So the idea is to be able to build from the bottom up and actually mimic construction to be able to, to do this ex vivo so that one day we might be able to do this. And, it, and it's, it's also <clears throat> interesting that if, if we could think of, <clears throat> of modifying DNA, <clears throat> if we modify the DNA, <clears throat> could we go directly from these seeds to the table? You know, why do we have to go to the tree and then to the table? You could think of just having the seeds go directly to the table. Uh, uh, and it, it sounds like science fiction, but it's really not. Why, why this shape object from these seeds? It's all just inscribed in the DNA. But there's nothing to say that we can't modify the DNA to go directly from seed to table. That would be something that, again, that, that we'd want to be able to explore and, and be able to do. And, and, and Humankind will be there. This will happen within a hundred years. You, you'll just grow the seeds directly into the object that you want it to grow. That will happen. So, this is the research group. This is my research group. And uh, for those of you in the back, that's me right there. And these are lots of people around me that do all the work. So, I really don't do any of the work. I just sit in my office and, and, and answer emails all day. It's about my job these days. Uh, but they're in the lab doing the work. Okay, so how did I become interested in chemistry? And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to put a backdrop here so that you know something about me, and then we'll, we'll get into the Darwinian theory and evolution. So how did I become interested in chemistry? Well, I was going to be a New York State trooper, and, and I really wanted to be a New York State trooper, but I couldn't because, because uh, I was colorblind. I'm colorblind, and... And in those days, you couldn't get into the academy if you were colorblind. I think now, if you're a paraplegic, you can get into the New York State Trooper Academy. In fact, it's advantageous to be paraplegic. But at the time, you couldn't get in. And so the colorblindness kept me out, so I thought I'd study forensic science. 
and, and not. So that's what I was going to do, that it, it could at least work in a, in a crime lab. But then I took my father's advice. And the amazing thing as I reflect back is that as a 17-year-old, I took my father's advice. And uh, he said that, why don't you just study chemistry more generally, and then after your bachelor's degree, you can focus in more on, on, uh, 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 on, on forensic science, if that's what you want to do. And so then I hit organic chemistry and organic synthesis, and I just fell in love with this new field. So this is usually what I tell students. If, if, if you don't like your major, you're probably not in the right major. It should be something that you enjoy. And uh, I have redirected many students away from, from uh, medical school through organic chemistry by encouraging them through that class that this is probably not where you want to be. And, and then they get in other fields and they're actually much happier. And, and uh, I was very happy doing organic synthesis. In fact, as an undergraduate, what I used to do is, you know, there's, there's these problems that are assigned at the end of every chapter. And then there's these other problems that are not assigned. I would do all the assigned problems, and then I would do all the unassigned problems. And then as an undergraduate, I took every course that, that was offered in graduate school as an undergraduate for organic chemistry, and I took all those. And so I really enjoyed or, organic synthesis, and it, it was a lot of fun for me. And so that's how I got into it. And so that, that cut out the forensic science, and that's why I became an organic chemist. And so molecular structure I see in everything. I see molecular structure in everything. And sometimes, sometimes it, 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 just, it just changes my perspective on things. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I can, I can look at the floor. I can look at the, these pews. And I know exactly why that wood has the properties that it has. Because I know the carbohydrate structures and the, and the, and the hydrogen bonding interactions between them. And that's why you can run your car into a tree and the tree stays there and the car is destroyed. Because these hydrogen bonds, it's not a covalent linkage between these strands, and so they'll give a little bit. If it had been a covalent linkage between them, that tree would have shattered. <clears throat> and so, so I see molecular structure and everything. Sometimes when I'm speaking to people, this happens very often, as I'm speaking to them, I'm looking in their eye. And in my mind's eye... What I see is I see the neurons firing and the protein synthesis occurring. And, and this is what I see. So I see molecular structure in everything, whatever I behold. So if I look at a tree, people are looking at a tree and I see these leaves. And, and in my mind's eye, I envision this magnesium atom sitting in the middle of a porphyrin. And light comes in and hits that. And it ejects an electron. So a photon of light comes in, ejects an electron, and that starts the whole photosynthesis process. This is what I think about when I look at a tree. And so I, there, there's this, this, this different depth of what I see in everything, in structure. I know exactly when I look at hair, the protein structure that's there and why it has the properties that it has. Why cotton has the properties that it has in your shirts. Why these stones have the properties that I have. Because, boom, immediately I see the molecular structure. And the molecular structure makes sense to me. And I'm telling you this so that you understand my perspective when I'm going to start talking about Darwinian evolution. I see molecular structure in everything. This is the way I've been trained. Most biologists are not trained this way. Evolutionary biologists are not trained this way. They fly over at 30,000 feet and they're looking down. 
I am living with the molecules. To me, molecules are my friends and, and I get to know them. And once you study molecules, they really take on characters so that you can predict what they will do. It's, it's, it's very much like, like our mothers. We know how much we can push our mother and then we know we, when we have to stop because it's just she's ready to blow. And we know what that tipping point is. And you understand what I'm talking about. You get to know people very well. I know with my wife, I've been married 32 years. I know what I should not say or else it's just trouble. Just trouble. And I know what to avoid. Or, so there are areas that I just don't touch because I've gotten to know her very well. It's the same with molecules. You learn what molecules do. We have a very good feel. So those of us who have spent our time building molecules, you learn about molecular interaction and you know what molecules do and what they don't do. You know the behavior, how it is that molecules are constructed. So, I want to start out here. This is the story that was told to me when I went to college. I went to college at the age of 18. And, and I just turned 18 and I was a freshman in college and, and uh, um, I was doing laundry in the laundry room in August of my freshman year and there was another, another young man in there and we got to talking and, and uh, I asked him what he wanted to do when he got done with school I, and because he was, he was a quarterback on the football team, I asked him if he wanted to play pro ball. He said, oh no, I'm not good enough for that. I said, well, what would you like to do? And he said, uh, I'd like to go into lay ministry. And I didn't know what that was because I grew up in a Jewish home, a secular Jewish home in New York City. And I didn't know what lay ministry was. And it was such a secular Jewish home, I had not been trained to resist people that talk about Jesus. <laughs> and and uh, um, so he told me he'd like to give me an illustration of the gospel. And I thought he was going to draw me a picture. And he did. And he spoke to me and he started drawing out this picture. He said, people are on one side, God is on the other. And the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ. And he had me read through a series of scriptures. He opened up a Bible and he had it right there and I started reading the verses. And I was really impacted by this. Things that he said, the words of Jesus Christ from 2,000 years ago really impacted me. So much so that I really wanted to get to God over this chasm of sin through Jesus Christ. Then on the night of November 7, 1977, I was in that room in the Lawrence and Hall dormitory at Syracuse University. That room, right there, room 1812. And I was all alone in that room. And my roommate wasn't there. The door was shut. And now he had told me the gospel in, in August. And I started investigating a few things. And here it was, November and I got on my knees. This is something that was never demonstrated to me in Christianity. Most Christians sit when they pray. Uh, uh, Jews will stand when they pray. And uh, um, I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me and come into my life. Now, I had been carrying a burden of sin from August until November. As a Jew, I never thought about sin. Jews don't think much about sin. We go to synagogue once a year and we are set. Christians think about sin all the time. Uh-oh, this thought. Uh-oh, oh, oh. Everything is an issue of sin. And so, I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that Jews are different than Christians. And so I had never thought about sin. And, and then when I was confronted 
with the Gospel, the truth of the Gospel, and the impact of these words of Jesus, I was carrying a burden of sin. And I asked Jesus to forgive me. And that day, when I asked Him to forgive me and come into my life, this burden of sin started to lift and then this presence filled the room. The presence was so strong, I thought somebody was standing in my room and I opened my eyes to see who was this somebody. But I could see nothing. But this presence was so real. And I just started weeping, something that was very unusual for me at that time in my life. And I didn't want to get up because the presence was so beautiful. And I felt this forgiveness and this closeness with God. And, and I, I asked, and I never tell, told anybody this experience that had happened for two weeks. I didn't, but I knew something had hit me, something had changed. And, and then I saw the guy who, who uh, had shared with me, and he said, Jim, have you asked Jesus into your heart? And I said, I, I think I have. Why do you ask? He says, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. I mean, you're different. And I really felt different. And I started to read the Scriptures every day of my life. So for 30, more than 35 years, I've been reading the Bible every day, systematically. It's a very easy system. I started Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and I read all the way through to Revelation. And when I finish Revelation 20, chapter 22, I start again. Just work my way through, over and over again. And I said, Lord, speak to me. Because I wanted this closeness to remain. And I asked him, how can I keep this closeness of this relationship? And he said, I've asked Christians who seem to have very little impact of, of faith in their lives and just sort of drifting along. And I asked them, do you read your Bible every day? And most of them say no. And then I asked Christians who are really excited about God. And I asked them, do you read your Bible every day? And they say yes. And I thought, that's easy. That's digital. You read your Bible every day. You'll stay close to God and excited. You don't, you won't. And then I saw there are real blessings coupled with this. Now, men have poured into my life. Every good habit that I have, I learned from godly men. And these are some of the godly men that have just poured themselves into my, in, into my life. And, and only one of them is, is, is still alive, and I, I'm thankful to, to all of them. This is my family. This is my wife. This is my granddaughter. Here's another granddaughter here. Here's my two granddaughters. And uh, this, this is, this, these are my children. This one, you can see, is not genetically attached <laughs> to us. And, and this is my son-in-law. And so, so uh, uh, these are the blessings of the Lord that have really come on my life. And I, I look at what's come on my life, and I am deeply indebted to Jesus Christ, what's come on my life. And does science dispel faith? Okay, does science dispel faith? That's a valid question. Many people say, how can you be a scientist and... Have faith. How can you be a scientist and believe? Well, science has never, never shaken my faith. It's actually strengthened my faith. And, and I'm not alone. Here's this man, is Lord Kelvin. We, we define our, our Kelvin temperature scale after him. He developed, uh, 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 he was a developer of the laws of thermodynamics. Not all of the laws, but uh, one of them for sure, and the other one he certainly impacted. I have long felt that there was a general impression that the scientific world believes science has discovered ways of explaining all facts of nature without adopting any definitive belief in a creator. I have never doubted that that impression was utterly groundless. That's what he said in about, in, in, in around 1870, he said that. And, and I was at Cambridge University. I spent five days lecturing last year at Cambridge University. And interestingly, he studied at Cambridge. You can go and you can see 
his room in the college, in the dormitory there. You can see Charles Darwin's room. You, you can uh, uh, see Isaac Newton's room. It's really an amazing place. You know, I, don't, I didn't want to be in the chemistry department. I just wanted to see the dormitory rooms of, you know, kind of posters that they put on the walls in those days. Okay, science strengthens my faith. And again, I'm not alone. Lord Kelvin said this. The more thoroughly I conduct scientific research, the more I believe science excludes atheism. If you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to believe in God, which is the foundation of all religion. We were building a molecular computer, and we we took a disordered array of molecules. And this molecular computer, we had to call it molecular computer because DARPA didn't want us to call it what we had been calling it. I called it a synthetic brain, and they thought it would get too much bad press. And and, and, uh, so... We, we just throw in a disordered array of molecules that have switching states. We don't know the order. And we start giving voltage pulses at the side to start programming it to do something useful according to what we want. We don't just take what we get. We want to program it to do something useful through external voltage pulses, but we don't know anything about what's in the box. This is not unlike the human brain. We, we don't know the interconnect pathway within each of our own brains. And the interconnect pathway is different. Globally, it's similar. But the exact interconnect pathway is different in everybody's brain. But as you use it, it develops. And so that's why you learn that it's better to put food here than here. This is something that you learn very young. And, and, and uh, uh, the brain learns these sort of things. And as we were building this, we could only make very simple logic gates out of this disordered array. And then one of my sons came running to me, and I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, God, how did you do that? Here's this balance, and all this, and they're learning. They don't say, I, I say, where is it? He says, I put it over there. You what? I put it over there. This is entirely logical. The English language with short words doesn't add ED. I put, I will put, I did put, it's all the same. The language is messed up. The brain logically put the ED at the end. This kid is just, his brain is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And then I watch a mosquito and it's just flying around. There's, you know how hard it is to build something that small? A package with a little brain that controls it. And that brain is sensing me and it, it's sensing the molecules that I'm emitting and drawing that, that mosquito to me. And after he stings, he starts emitting small molecules to call other mosquitoes and to say, come, here's, here's me right here. All of this sophistication and this organized flight. You know, they, they, I was just reading this article about mosquitoes that why doesn't rain kill mosquitoes? The raindrops would just grab them and smash them into the ground. And they studied this. And the mosquitoes, when the raindrop comes, they ride this drop and they, 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 they skim right off this drop very, very quickly. I mean, amazing design, all in a little package. Think about trying to design something like that. It's really, really hard. I mean, let alone an entity like us as a technological entity. Just a mosquito that can have this kind of flight in such a small package and all this molecular sensing and interaction. It's really extraordinary. Science will strengthen your faith. You look at this, you go, wow. How can this be done? Okay, here's the promise. This is the promise from the Scriptures. The Scripture says, Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Look at what this... And he says, I understand more than the age, because I have observed your precepts. Look what the Scripture says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. If we will take the Word of God and make it our daily meditation, the Word of God puts it in two different ways. It says, meditating on the Word of God every day or day and night, depending on where you read. But there is no promise of any blessing for reading the Scriptures three times a week. Maybe you get blessed, maybe you don't. The promise is only for everyday reading. That's really it. And people think that that the Word of God is very general. It's not. It's high specificity. The promise is for meditation every day. This is why for more than 35 years I've been reading the Bible every day because I believe this promise. It says if you do this, you will have more insight than all your teachers. And it doesn't say than just Bible teachers. It doesn't say that. It says than all your teachers. Do you want to believe the Word of God or not? Many people don't. Fine. I do. And when I see believers that don't, I say, Lord, the blessing that they could have had had they believed, don't let it go to waste. I'll take it. (laughs) This is what the Scripture said. I've I've had the blessing of studying under many great people. He says, you'll have more insight than all your teachers if you make the Word of God your daily meditation. I believe it. The excitement of a scientist with faith. I think it's exciting to be a scientist and have faith. It's not problematic for me at all, and it's not something I worry about. And I'm not alone. Ronald Ross discovered that, uh, that the malaria parasite lives in the mosquito's stomach. And he, he made this discovery in 1897. I mean, read this account. It's extraordinary. Here was a, a, a rich Englishman who was a physician working in India, and he could have just taken par- he could have just stayed in, in, in England. No, he wanted to be there because he wanted to figure out where's malaria coming from. People thought it came from this, this odor that arises from swamps. And so he was studying and, and just how his last remaining eyepiece was cracked. The knobs on his microscope were frozen because his sweat was dripping on him. He couldn't use he couldn't have, have the local people fanning him while he did his dissections because it would blow all the parts of the mosquitoes around. I mean, just what he went through. The day that he discovered that the parasite lives in the stomach of the mosquito, he wrote a poem to his wife to mail it to her. She was back in England. And, and here's Ronald Ross, and here's what he wrote. He said, This day, relenting God, hath placed within my hand a wondrous thing, and God be praised at His command. Seeking his secret deeds with tears and toiling breath, I find thy cunning seeds, O million murdering death. I know this little thing a myriad men will save. O death, where is your sting, your victory, O grave? You can tell this man is a lover of the Bible because of the way he writes, where he takes excerpts from it. But how excited he was at this discovery because he knew this was going to be the beginning of saving many people. This is an excitement that comes of knowing Christ and being a scientist. It's not problematic. It leads to glory. I'm going to give you one instance from my life. Many, many instances, but 
September 3rd, 1993, I'd recently received tenure, and I was invited back to Purdue University where I had gotten my PhD. And when I went back there, um, uh, I was staying in the Purdue Memorial Union and Hotel in there, and a beautiful hotel. And I was praying that morning that, that God would bless the seminar. Because I always pray. I always pray before I go in and have to lecture that God would really bless. And I started reading this verse. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. I said, Lord, you're really raising my faith. I pray it's the best seminar ever in that department, ever. They said, well, Lord, how am I going to know? The department's 100 years old. Have I heard every seminar? How, who's to judge? I said, Lord, if it's the best seminar, I pray that my advisor, here's my advisor, his name was H. Nagishi, he won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2010. This was in 1993, long before he won the Nobel. But when I was working for him, this was in the, in the 1980s that I was working for him. And, and uh, whenever I brought him a good result... If I thought it was really good, he would say, pretty good, for your level. I never got past this man's ways. And I, and I prayed, Lord, that, that when, I, when I give my seminar, that if it's really the best seminar ever in that department, that he would say that it was super, that it was a super seminar. Not a terminology he normally used. Well, I gave this seminar, and, and uh, um, I knew God had really blessed me. And as soon as I got done, he was sitting right on the front row, on the end. He stood up and he said, Super! Super! You know, God really does answer prayer. I mean, the Bible talks about this sort of thing, you know. And, and sitting right behind him was another man, H.C. Brown, who had won the 1979 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Nagishi worked for Brown. So Brown was sitting there, and he was in his 80s at the time. And I walked up to him, and I, he was sitting there, and I shook his hand, and I, and I said, thank you for coming to the seminar today. And he held on to my hand. He says, I want to tell you something. That's the best seminar I've ever seen in my life. And I said, that's very kind of you to say that. And in typical Nobel Prize winning fashion, he said, I'm not saying it to be kind. I really mean it. <laughs> there is an excitement in being a scientist and walking with God. So how does a cell operate chemically? So here is a cell. And all this stuff is going on. This is a factory. It is not a bunch of protoplasm. It is a factory. How do you get material in a factory from one end of a factory to another? How do you do that? You know, these forklifts come in and pick it up, and, or you've got these things hanging over and it goes up on a rack, you know, and it goes across the factory. And that's how things move across. How do you get things to move from one side to another in a cell? Exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. A cell needs material in one end what will happen is microtubules just start constructing right across this cell to take material from one end of a cell to another along this track. And as soon as the material is done getting there, that microtubule just goes away, breaks up into, into monomers, small molecules again, and then uses those small molecules to build another track to bring in other material that's needed. It constructs and deconstructs so rapidly. Why does it do that? Why does it just leave it there? Because there's not enough material in the cell to be able to do this. So it 
uses it and reuses it and reuses it to, to, to make all these different tracks to move material information. Material and information back and forth. There is so much going on in here. A lot of it we understand. More than what we understand, we don't understand. There is so much in a cell we don't understand. Anybody will tell you that chemically, at the chemical level, we don't understand how it does it. How does it do this? We can observe these sort of things, but a lot of interaction we don't understand. So, what do we do? Though I do not understand the vast chemical mechanisms in a cell, it clearly does operate. It's functioning. So it functions whether I understand it or not. It's working. But as a scientist, I want to understand it. It is not improper to ask the question, by what chemical mechanisms does it function? The very question spawns further investigation. So what do scientists do? They ask questions. How does it do that? And then we formulate a hypothesis. Well, maybe it does it by such and such a mechanism. And then we go in and we start looking at that. And as soon as that hypothesis is not substantiated, that we show it's not by that mechanism, boom, we've got to get rid of that hypothesis. We have to come up with a new hypothesis. And we propose something and then we go looking. Any scientist would say, yes, this is how you do science. You ask a question. How does it happen? You ask the question. Any science, this is good science. Science is all about asking the question. Scientists say, yes, amen. Any scientists here? Amen. This is what you do. The question often asked of me by students is, what do you think about evolution? What do you think about that? Well, all of my colleagues are Darwinists, and I love them as people and deeply respect them as scientists. I hope that they feel the same way about me. Here, I'm defining a Darwinist as one who holds that random mutation and natural selection account for the complexity of life. So many people have different definitions, but for our purposes here tonight, they hold that random mutation and natural selection account for the complexity of life. The thing that most often impacts my Darwinist friends is this. When they're confronted with a devout, Jesus-believing Darwinian skeptic, who is also equally an equally accomplished scientist, causes them to, to scratch their head and it impacts them. This is, you know, people have asked me. My colleagues ask me. And I don't want to be an attacking critic. I just want to learn. I am not here to confront them. When the pastor asked me to do this, he, I said, I don't do debates. I don't do debates. It doesn't draw anybody any closer. I don't need to show off my intellect or show off my foolery. I don't need to. A lot of things I don't know. I said, I'm willing, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with speaking about it, but I'm not going to confront anybody. I just want to learn. So I ask questions about chemistry. About chemistry. Show me the chemistry. And right away, things start wilting around the edges. My question to the Darwinist is this. I just ask them to explain evolution. Not the origin of life. That's much harder. From a chemical perspective. That's it. I ask them to explain to me evolution from a chemical perspective. How does this happen? Everybody believes evolution. Everybody does. Okay. Why? Why do you believe it? Show me the chemistry. How do you go from small random molecules. I'll even give you the amino acids. All chiral, too. 
All one enantiomer. You don't have to tell me how you... I'll give you that. Now tell me how these things come together. Which comes first, the DNA or the cell membrane? Ah, da, da, da. I don't know. You can't have a DNA with a nucleus without a cell membrane. You can't get a cell membrane without DNA prescribing this thing. You can't get past first base. You can't, just from a, a chemical perspective, show me the chemistry. I have asked this to Nobel Prize winners. I have asked this to heads of the National Institutes of Health. Nothing. 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 Not a word. I was with Francis Collins, a friend of mine, head of the National Institutes of Health, the one who's, who headed the Human Genome Project. He's a Christian. He's a theistic evolutionist. He believes that in evolution, and I, he, that God set all this in motion, and that we certainly evolved. And I said, Francis, I want to see the chemistry. He says, This is all worked out. I said, Show me the chemistry. He said, Okay, I'll send you some papers. Now remember, chemistry is molecules. Remember that? Everything I see, molecules. He said, He's got to have chemistry. I'll send you the papers. He sent me two papers. It's a bunch of fish heads. There's not a molecule in the paper. It's not there. Another young guy challenged me because he was a student at Berkeley and he was like the poster child for attacking those who have trouble with evolution. And, and uh, you know, he said all these things about me on the Internet. And, and so finally I got through to him and I called him. And I said, okay, just settle down. You're a young guy. You've got a lot of testosterone. You've got to just settle down. <laughs> to me, everything is chemical. I, I, I know where he's coming from. And, and I said... You know, we've got to... He says, have you ever read any of the papers on evolution of a complex system? I said, from a chemical perspective? He says, yeah. He says, there's lots of papers on that. I said, there are. Show me because I really want to learn. He said, what will it take... If, you, if I show you, are, are then you're going to come around on my side? I said, look, I will be honest with you. If you show me chemistry where you have evolution of a complex system, I'll accept it. I said, you find me just two or three papers. Two or three. I said, I can't study in detail. I'm not a graduate student anymore. I can't pour over papers for days. You send me two or three papers. That's all I can digest. And show me the molecules. After four months, I still had nothing. I called him up. I said, where's the papers? He said, you know, I've been so busy. I've been so busy. It is now nine months. He hasn't sent it. Remember, no response is a response in itself. They're not there. The poor kid is probably Googling all over the place. You will find articles on evolution of complex systems from 30,000 feet. The evolutionary biologist's perspective. But there's no molecules. Remember, this is the way we think. This is the way we do construction. Everything has to have a molecular basis. On my website, if you go to jmtour.com, I wrote this on my website. I'm just quoting from my website. Some are disconcerted or even angered that I signed a statement back in 2001 along with over 700 other scientists which says, we are skeptical of the claims of the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. You know, somebody sent this to me in an email. Can you agree with this? I said, sure. All of a sudden, my name is up on a website, and now that, that is like the worst thing. People say, because you signed that, I can't accept anything of you. They look back at the statement. 
All it says is I'm skeptical of the claims. It never says Darwinian evolution is wrong. It says I'm skeptical. So careful examination for the evidence of Darwinian theory should be encouraged. Careful examination should be encouraged. Remember with the cell? Every scientist would say, yeah, there's a lot we don't understand there. We need to further investigate. Give me grant money and I'll do it. But with this, you can't touch it. It's become an area that's taboo. You know what areas are taboo? Religion. You can't touch people. Don't come against somebody's religion. That's really dear to them. But science, there's no area of science like this. Except this. You can't touch it. So I continue on my website. I simply do not understand chemically how macroevolution could have happened. Hence, am I not free to join the ranks of the skeptical and to sign such a statement without reprisals from those that disagree with me? Furthermore, when I, a nonconformist, ask proponents for clarification, they get flustered in public and confessional in private, wherein they sheepishly confess that they really don't understand either. Well, that's all I'm saying. I don't understand, but I'm saying it publicly as opposed to privately. Does anyone understand the chemical details behind macroevolution? If so, I would like to sit with that person and be taught. So I invite them to meet with me. Lunch will be my treat. Until then, I will maintain that no chemist understands. Hence, we are collectively bewildered. And I have not even addressed origin of first life issues. For me, that's even more scientifically mysterious than evolution. Darwin never addressed origin of first life, and I can see why he did not. He was far too smart for that. Present-day scientists that expose their thoughts on this become ever so timid when they talk with me privately. I simply cannot understand the source of their confidence when, when addressing their positions publicly. That has been up on my website for about, I don't know, eight years, ten years, something like that. Nobody's come for lunch. Nobody. This one kid that I told you was a student at Berkeley, and he said, I'll come for lunch if somebody put this up on a blog. I don't read blogs, because I don't have time to read blogs. I don't know who has time to read blogs. But anyway, apparently he put this up on a blog, so somebody else said, I'll buy you the ticket. And so the person who oversees the blog sent me this in an email, said, I said, sure, I'll pick him up from the airport. I never pick up anybody from the airport if they're not family, but him I'll pick up. He can stay in my home, I'll take him to lunch, he's explained it to me. I said, but we're not recording this, this is just, he's going to explain it to me. And then he, then he responded, well, if it can't be recorded, I'm not coming. Huh? So, I, I don't understand, why should I waste my time? He said. Well, he was the one who said he was going to come and explain it to me, over lunch. Nobody's come. You know how many chemists and chemical engineers there are in the city of Houston? They could easily come and explain it to me? If it's so clear, if, if maybe some of you understand this chemically, come and tell me. I, and what I say on my website is, I won't contest with you at all. I will only listen and then ask the question when I stop understanding. You're going to have to, from a chemical basis, how do you get one organ to evolve into another? This is a macroevolution. How, how do you get one system changing into another? How do you do this? Microevolution we do all the time in a test tube. But macroevolution, when you see dramatic changes, how do you do this chemically? How, how does it happen? And then when I speak with people, it's really interesting. I, I sat with a Nobel Prize winner and a National Academy member in my office. And I, said, I, I looked at them I said, do you guys understand this? Do you understand this? Because they were, they, they were upset with me that I had signed the statement. Now, there were two of them there. 
so it wasn't private anymore. And I said, do you understand? I looked at do you understand it? And he just stared at me. So I looked at the other one, the Nobel Prize. I said, do you understand it? And he just stared at me. I was in Israel, and a biophysicist was telling me about his work. Was this, 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 we, we have a rod in our ears that, that's... Um, it's modulus. Its stiffness changes along the length of the rod. And that's how we can hear different tones so well. And he was, as he was describing this to me, it was so fascinating. I, said, I stopped him and I said, tell me, how does something like this evolve? How does it happen? Chemically, how does it happen? And he looked at me. Typical Jewish response. He says, Jim, look. We all believe in evolution, but we have no idea how it happened. And that's exactly it. This is the first honest response I got. We all believe it, but we have no idea how it happened. And so because I say the emperor has no clothes, people get upset. Everybody says, and so a graduate student is up there, well, how did that form? Oh, it formed evolutionarily. Okay, now I bow down and I keep quiet, because evolutionarily... encompasses everything. Now I'm happy. Now I understand. Yes, you may proceed. Nothing else would I ever say you could say one word and then then move on. Show me. What's the outcome of my skepticism of Darwinian evolution? I've never experienced biblical level persecution for my Christian faith or beliefs on evolution creation. Never. Biblical level persecution is, remember the Bible says, you haven't yet shed blood in your resistance? I've never yet shed blood. Alright? So, so no Bible level persecution. Anything I've undergone has just been kindergarten. Denial of tenure? No. Loss of funding? Not that it can positively identify. Harassment? Not to any degree worth mentioning. Ridicule on rare occasions, but not often directly to me. People will ridicule me to somebody else, and then I hear about it, but they never come to me. Confrontations, yes, but these are often diffused with a few questions. So I ask a question. They get all sheepish and walk away. I don't, I don't contest this. I'm not here to disprove Darwinian theory. I'm not. I don't know how to disprove it. I'm just going to ask you a few questions. That's all. It seems to diffuse itself. Have I not been hired for a position? I suspect so, because I was told. Have I been excluded from professional societies? Yes. Has it hurt my career? Yes. Am I criticized for my skepticism? Well, Charles Spurgeon says this. I love Charles Spurgeon. He says, those who criticize us are probably no more mistaken than those who praise us. Try to win your critic with double kindness. And so I really try to befriend these people. I want them to be my friend. I, I, I just try so hard to be my, let, let them be my friend. If I know they like something, I buy them that. I mean, I, I just want them to be my friend. Try to win them with, 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 uh, with double kindness. Here's the hope that I see. Science is self-correcting. It really is. If Darwinian theory is correct, the chemical description will become evident. It may just be that we don't know yet. The chemical description may be... That's why I can't disprove Darwinian theory. 
All I'm saying is, right now, there, we don't have the chemical evidence. That's all I'm saying. Is right now, we don't have it. Maybe in a hundred years, we'll have it. Science is self-correcting. There may be another theory. People are upset that, I'm not, that, I, that I say I'm not an intelligent design proponent. I believe God created the heavens and the earth. He created a, a, a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. I really believe that. I don't know the details of how He did it. So I'm not an intelligent design proponent because some people think if it's not Darwinian, then it must be ID, intelligent design. Not so. That's not the way science works. Just because something it can't be doesn't mean that it's the only other thing on the table. No, maybe there's other things that haven't yet hit the table. I'm just asking a few questions. I can't disprove Darwinian evolution, nor do I want to. I just want to ask a few questions. If it makes you nervous, then you want to question, is this a religion or is this science? As of today, in my opinion, there is little such evidence, so further investigation is warranted. That's it. Let's investigate further. I think we should have more research into this. I think we should teach it along with what we really know and what we don't know. And just say, this is a theory. Here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Continue to investigate. Science is self-correcting. I have no trouble with doing science. I suppose that greater than 99% of scientists never think about confronting anyone on these issues. They're too busy with other things. It's just a very small minority that likes to you know, stand up there and, and, and to say things. Because I don't know, they, they, it's like they have nothing left to do in life. But, but uh, fight against people who, who don't embrace this. Here's my hope. The younger generation has a deeper sense of social fairness and justice. And they're less impressed with conformal academic fluff. I have great hope in the younger generation. Most of the people who confront those of us who don't readily embrace this, were born in the UK, shortly, born in the UK around the time of, of, of uh, uh, World War II, around that time, and they've taken this on as their mantra to, to, to really contest this thing. Young people are not impressed by this, they're not impressed with, with, with big societies that are, that, that are self-selecting, and they have a much greater sense of social fairness than we did in my generation. The younger generation is really into social fairness and justice. And I have great hope that they will start coming forward and say, hey, I don't understand this either. And I shouldn't be disenfranchised because I don't understand it. Show me. My merely asking a few questions is sufficient to bring hesitations to Darwinists. I just ask him a few questions and immediately all becomes quiet. What does that tell you? This is Richard Smalley, won the Nobel Prize in 1996. He was a good friend of mine. We were sitting on an airplane together to visit the, the, uh, the CEO of Intel. And, and uh, he turned to me and he said, Do you really believe all that stuff in the Bible? I said, yeah, I think I do. He said, good. Finally, someone with a brain that I can talk to. So we talked for a few hours on this flight. And uh, um, then when we got done, he said, do you know why you spoke to me the way you did? I said, no, why is that? He says, 
Because you're really a Jew. If you'd have been a Baptist, you'd have just said, well, that's the way it is. <laughs> the primary mission to which I am called is to reflect the love of Jesus. That's my primary mission. I'm not here to contest with a bunch of Darwinists. My primary mission is to reflect the love of Jesus, to share with what Jesus has done in my life. He has been so good to me. That's what I want to do. Rick Smalley came to the Lord, a deep, deep uh, profession of faith, about a year and a half before he, he passed away of leukemia. Just a tremendous man. The hope that I see... Some battles are won by one nursing home and one grave at a time. These guys are dying off. They are. These guys are dying off, and there's a younger generation coming in. And I'm not alone in this understanding. Here's Max Planck, a quantum theorist, won the 1918 Nobel Prize in Physics. Here's what he said. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die. That's true. These guys are not going to change. They're going to die. They eventually get old and they'll, they'll sit there and they'll drool and they'll be unable to speak and then they're going to die. And what you're going to see is you're going to see a younger generation come forth that's just going to be asking the same questions that I ask. And things are going to wilt around the edges until research is done they can wholeheartedly substantiate this and then I will readily embrace it, as will many other scientists. But if it doesn't, then we need some other explanations here. So here's the summary. I told you about my interest in chemistry and molecular structure, my coming to faith. And I hope, if there's anyone here who's never had that experience, that you would have a similar experience. The joy of students and family, the excitement of a scientist with faith. To have faith in God, to really believe the Scriptures, and to be a scientist is a wonderful thing. My Darwinist friends and my yearning for a chemical explanation and further investigation. I want further investigation, and I love my Darwinist colleagues. Persecution and criticism of the skeptic, I've told you about that. And there is hope in the young, the death of the old, and science is self-correcting. And with that, I'm done. Thank you, Dr. Tour. Please have a seat. And uh, during this time, if you have any questions, our ushers will be coming down uh, the aisle uh, and just uh, pass those down to the center aisle, and they'll be collected in the, uh, in the offering plate. And we'll try to choose as many as we have time for and try to get through them uh, quickly. And leg legibility will help. So if you, uh, you know, have good handwriting, that will help us read, read the questions and choose a few very quickly. Um, Dr. Tour, I'll begin with just a few questions. Uh, you, you did touch on this a little bit already. Uh, I noted on your website uh, that you, 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 you talk about not being a, a proponent of uh, intelligent design. Uh, I guess by that label. Um, would you be able or be willing to share, uh, because my, my guess is there are a fair amount of uh, Christians in the audience who are not comfortable with Darwinian evolution uh, or <coughs> perhaps what 
is commonly called young earth creationism and, and, and for whom intelligent design is a, a, a nice way, a, a worldview, perhaps. So would, could you maybe address some of the strengths of the argument of, of ID, but perhaps some of its weaknesses if you didn't already? So because we don't have an explanation to say, therefore, God created it, it is, can be viewed as a, as a weak argument from a scientific perspective. I hold my colleagues to certain standards where they need to, they, they, they need to show me, using the tools of chemistry, how Darwinian evolution takes place. They need to use the tools of, of the chemical sciences that I know. And, and uh, intelligent design doesn't use those tools. And I, I sat with a, a very strong ID proponent uh, who's also a mathematician. He has a master's degree in, in, in uh, uh, so one of the biological sciences. And he's a mathematician and he's a dear friend of mine and he's been to my home before. And I asked him, I said, what is the... Tool, what, is, what are the tools, the tools of chemistry that give the strongest argument for intelligent design? Because I want, I want to know that. And he thought for a while, he said, statistics. I said, no doubt, statistics are there. That, that to, by statistics, Darwinian evolution is very, very difficult. But it's, and, and, and it's very hard to see how life can come just using statistical arguments. So there, one might hold to intelligent design. But there's so many more direct tools in the chemical sciences that intelligent design proponents can't grab hold of. And remember, by my faith, by my Bible, I am very sympathetic to intelligent design. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is, in, that is on the earth. Everything. I believe that. I don't know how to prove that scientifically using my tools of chemical science. So I don't think it's fair to inject that into the classroom and to say, therefore, this is the case, because I hold my colleagues to certain scientific standards. That's, that's the argument of it. Now, if you'd like me to address young earth, old earth, I can do that, but that's, that's a little bit different discussion. I was thinking that as I was sitting there. Uh, I think it would be worth noting, if you wouldn't mind, um, because um, what, one, uh, one, one thing I've heard before, for example, and this may be, as a pastor, I'm not sure, it may be more in the realm of biology rather than, than chemistry, but I've heard some that say that, for example, four billion years is not, even that is not enough time to account for all of the complexity of life given Darwinian evolution at, at the rate that things change. I, I don't know if you have a comment on, on that. Um, if, if, if you could tell how long it might take for the complexity of life that we have, if four billion years would be enough. Um, and if not, where, where does that leave maybe the age right. of the Earth? Right. So, yeah, yeah the, the, the time tells us a lot. So, when the Earth cooled, we know the Earth had to have been very hot. If you look at the moon, it's pelted with these meteorites that left all these big craters. The same craters that hit the moon 
that formed on the moon were here on Earth. That's why we have all of these rich elements on Earth, just huge riches of elements from, from uh, uh, all over have hit this Earth six times more than the moon because our, our mass is greater than that of the moon. It's just that we have an atmosphere which has smoothed things out, which the moon doesn't. But as soon as the Earth cooled, we have evidence of forms of life immediately. Time element goes away. Within very, very short time frames, life bursts forth on Earth. Now, if we consider young Earth versus old Earth, again, I'm very sympathetic to the argument of, uh, um, of young Earth argument from the Bible being somewhere around 6,000 years old. And, and I'm sympathetic to that because if you do take the, the, the first six days as being, as being literal 24-hour days, then you would come up with that. The interesting thing about that is even Jewish scholars never took those as being 24-hour days. There were very often that, that the word day, yom, is, is translated differently and used differently. Even they'll say a, a day of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Okay, well, when Jesus said that, it was the day. It's no longer that day. You know, so there's many usages of the word day. But what we find is, I think one of, the, one of the best arguments is that of Gerald Schroeder, who's not a Christian, but, but a, a Jew, who's an Orthodox Jewish physicist. And what he talks about is this time is relative. And let me, let me describe it to you this way. We know that our universe is expanding. Today will be a longer day than yesterday. Very slightly longer but longer. And we know that because our universe is expanding. Any scientist, this has been shown over and over again that the universe is expanding, meaning that it burst forth from a point and it's constantly expanding. As it's expanding, our days are getting longer and longer. Our 24-hour day, it's usually 24 hours plus a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. That means that at the burst of the universe, time was very different than it is today. If we look back at this, this is a long period of time. It was a short period of time there that we, as we look back. So if a laser was firing every second and we look at that time, that, that light now, it would look like a very different time frame. Not every second. It would look like a very massive time frame. Time is relative by the expansion of the universe. This is clear. The universe expands, time is relative. And so then what Gerald Shorter did is he didn't leave it at that. And he has it in a book and, and other people have taken these numbers and dissected them. And you look at the time period, day one. The sun doesn't even come out until day four. Now you can deal with that in different ways. Day four, you still have things happening long before there's a sun, day one, two, and three. But... but uh, um, but the key is that if you look at what was formed on the different days in the Bible, that that matches up historically. Now, if you take mankind, for example, humankind, don't want to even say mankind. I've got to train myself out of that in the university. There is no man. There's only human. Humankind. You take humankind. Humankind burst forth on the scene as we know it. There were certainly bipedal creatures, Neanderthals and things like that, but human beings burst forth on the scene sub-100,000 years and maybe sub-50,000 years. 50,000 and 6,000 are the same when you're talking about geological time frames. They're really the same. 
we know that, that, that you all of a sudden start seeing bipedal creatures walking on two feet that all of a sudden have culture, have music, bury the dead, have religion because they're burying the dead with trinkets. All of this burst forth on the scene within the time frame that the Bible gives us for the bursting forth of humankind. There were bipedal creatures in the, in, in, in the geological record that are there, that are clearly there, but they weren't humans. They weren't humans. Humans as we know them burst forth on the scene. And so when you take that, that the time is relative, it's very hard, it's, it's, you get a very different perspective. And I remember sending these articles to a biostatistician at uh, MD Anderson, who's a friend of mine and a Christian, and he started tearing apart the numbers. He said it is spot on for when this was created and this was created. And now, you know, the seventh day never came. You look in the book of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. The seventh day has never gone. There's a, there's, there's a good understanding that we are still living in the seventh day. There is no new creations. There are no new species coming up. There's no new creations here. The only thing we do is we lose species. We're still in this time where there's no new creation there's, as far as species and things. We are still in this Sabbath rest, still in the seventh day. Because, we, all right, well, he rested on the seventh day. And how about the eighth day? There's no eighth day. And, and, and so we are still living in this seventh day. So theologically, this makes sense to me. Scientifically, it makes sense in the expansion of the universe. And if you just Google this, Google Gerald Schroeder. Gerald Schroeder, doesn't matter how you spell it, it's going to come up. Age of the Universe. Gerald Schroeder, Age of the Universe. And it's like a three-page article and you go, wow. That was tremendous. I have sat with young earth creationists. And you know when you read that article, you know what you come out with? Both the old earth and the young earth creationists are right. Both are right. Because when you look at it from one perspective, it happened in a very short time period. When you look at it from our perspective here, it happened over a very long time period because time is relative. That's the beauty of that article. No matter what your background, no matter what you feel on this, old earth, young earth, you're going to walk, walk away and say, I was right. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure that question was on the minds of, of many, many Christians here. Uh, perhaps five Christians, too. Um, some, some really wonderful questions. I'll, I'll try to get to some quickly here. What kind of evidence would you expect to find on a chemical level if Darwinian or macroevolution were true? Yeah, so, so that's not that simple of a question. So if it were true, we would expect that we could see molecules coming together in a much more facile manner where you, you take the elements that are within a cell, and you would start seeing self-assembly of these. And so, so you would start seeing an entire cell membrane form. You have to have some way of doing this without enzymes, which were prescribed by the DNA. The DNA encoded for RNA and RNA to make the enzymes to do the sophisticated structure. So you, start ha you have to start seeing really sophisticated structure. The only thing that you can see without enzymatic assembly or without machine assembly is you only see very simple patterns. And by that I mean uh, you will see AAAA or ABABABAB. Very simple thermodynamic patterns can, you can see assembly. 
sodium chloride. You can see this, this, this sodium with chloride, sodium chloride, sodium chloride. You never see complex assembly. Complex assembly takes machine interaction. Enzymes are little nanomachines. Meaning that we are complex organisms. We have many different parts that do different things. A cell has many different parts. You, you would start seeing complex assembly without having prescribed interaction yet, that these things have to come. Or you would start seeing assembly of those machine components to start doing it. You somehow have to have complex assembly in molecular structure. Complex assembly. Not just a thermodynamic repeated assembly. And that's the only way you get complex organisms. And we would see that, and we've just never seen that sort of thing. So that's a good question, but not that easy to answer. What is your opinion on miracles? Something that can't be explained by science. Right. So, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that He was born of a virgin. That's a miracle. I believe that He rose from the dead. That's a miracle. So, in my belief system, I well believe that. And I embrace it. Can I prove that chemically? No. The way we prove the resurrection is we prove it with an historical proof. You look at the record of the times and just like we put people and we send them to, to a death sentence based on evidence that comes by compiling evidence by historical proofs. We can do the same thing with historical proofs of things in history. How do I know George Washington existed? How do I know we didn't just you know, you, you know, come here in 1850 and then it started there and just we're envisioning that all this happened? No, we have historical proofs that give us evidence of the time. So that's the historical proof. But the chemical proof, these, are, the, the, these, would, these would be all miracles by our estimation, and so I believe miracles occur today. I spend a lot of time in my day praying to God for His intercession on my life. I have no chemical explanation on how this occurs, but I don't bring my prayer life into the classroom and start teaching this in the science classroom. I teach this in my church. In the science classroom, when I'm teaching chemistry, I'm bound by the certain strictures of chemistry. So I'm not bringing miracles. And I said, miracle, this compound forms. No, I have to show them how this compound forms. And, 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 and so within different contexts, we have different strictures that dictate us. And this is not unusual within families. You sit around your family table, you have certain discussions. And so when we would have guests to my home, I would tell my children before the guests came, I would say, remember, you cannot be yourself tonight. We have guests coming. All right? And, and so we do things differently in different situations. In that vein, I, I think, is a, a question from skeptics. We always invite Christians and non-Christians to these events. Um, how do you reconcile science and God? One is based on reason and proofs, that being science. The other, God, is based on beliefs and fiction. Uh, the author also says, I guess it depends on your definition of God, that which has no cause, uh, but any other attribute, all-powerful and all-good. Okay. No way, she says. Okay. So, so yeah, that, that, that 
so, so that's certainly a valid question. And, and um, so I think the Bible has much more than you give it credit for. There are historical proofs. So much has been proved in, 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 in uh, uh, the, the, the records that you can go back, you can dig, and you can find things. So to just throw that whole book out as fiction is not fair. It really is not fair. You can go back and you can look at that. So there's a lot of proof that is there. But granted, to take hold of God is based on faith. And based on faith that I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so you think that therefore there should be a difference because science is based on fact. There's a lot of science that's not based on fact that we, that we don't understand. Darwinian evolution is an example. But people just take hold of this. So much so that when it's questioned, they want you to stop talking. Don't say that. It sounds like a religion. So, so I don't think that science is totally based on fact. What it does is it, it, it spawns us to go, okay, I see a cell exists and it certainly functions. I don't understand how it functions. I wanted, I wanted to show my children one day how little scientists know. So we had a bunch of scientists to our home from the university. I had invited some people over and... and uh, and I, and I told my children to watch. So I said, now watch what happens. And I, so I posed to the scientists. I said, I have a cell. And the cell just died. Just died. Every, all the molecules are still in place, but it just died. What is it that I've lost? What is it that has happened? That that organism was just alive and now it's dead. What was it? And one of them said, oh, it's the ionic potentials. The ionic potentials are what was giving it life, and now it's, it, it, this ionic potentials have ceased. And the other one said, no, 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 no. It's much, much deeper than that. It's not just ionic potentials. And they got in this argument. They couldn't even tell me. What is it I've just lost? I gave them the whole cell. Explain for me what life is one moment and not in another moment, not in a human being, not a just a single cell. So there's so much we don't know. I am, as a scientist, I walk around and, and sometimes I think if people knew how much I don't know, you, you know, they, they would think I'm a charlatan, that I, that I stand up in front of a university and lecture so confidently. There's so much I don't know. You know, this molecule is attacked and this certain interaction comes in. And, and it's very fuzzy what we have here. And 30, 40, 50 years ago, before we had quantum mechanics and quantum theory helping us to direct things in, 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 into right orbital cons configurations, I mean, there was just lots that they didn't know. So to say it's wholly based on fact isn't fair to science. That's not true. And to, to say the Bible is just wholly based on fiction isn't fair to to the Bible. It's just not true. So I don't think you've been fair to either. We have time for one more question. And uh, because you mentioned what really, what, what is your, um, a compelling uh, drive for you, that's not the right way to say it, but it is your Christian faith. Um, so I want to get back to that. Um, someone has a question that says, I have a Jewish friend interested in becoming a Christian 
worried about his family's reaction. Any advice? Now, I would say, I, although growing up as a secular Jew, you could speak to that, but I would, I think there, not just people who are Jewish and interested in becoming Christian, but people who are secularists or materialists or non-believers or, or whatever. Any advice on, on their yeah. reaction? Because the reaction can mm-hmm. be just as hard yeah. coming from a secular family. Yes, yes. So, um, you know, all of the apostles were Jewish, and, and uh, um, none of them denied their Jewishness. It wasn't until much later, in around 60 AD, that they started referring to Gentile believers in Jesus as Christians, and that was in Antioch. When Paul made a defense for who he is, he said, I am a Jew born of the tribe of Benjamin, studied under Gamaliel, born in Tarsus, grew up in this city, meaning Jerusalem. He never called himself a Christian. None of the apostles called themselves Christians. And, and I, I bear that name Christian loosely so people understand where I'm coming from. But I am a Jew. I was born a Jew. I will die a Jew. What happens is, is biblically, Gentiles turn from the worshipping of idols to Jesus. They convert to Christianity. Jews, it says, the Bible says we all need a conversion of heart. But Jews return, the word is teshiva, return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We make a return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what I did when I accepted the Messiah. I was turning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and accepting His Son, the Messiah. Jesus never called Himself a Christian. That came much later. So as a Jew, you you will remain a Jew. It's just that you're going to follow the teachings of this man, Jesus, who is the Messiah, the one that we long and we wait for as a Jew. I would encourage the Jew to read the end of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53. And you may say, well, I've heard the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament in synagogue. You have not heard that passage. That is one of the few passages that they skip. Because if I were to read to you the end of Isaiah 52, which talks about the, the, the persecution of Jesus in the scourging, and then of Isaiah 53, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. You would think that I was reading, that I had been reading from the, the New Testament. It is so vivid that it is not read in synagogues. What you read in synagogues is you read the daily, the, 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 the weekly circuit of reading the first five books of Moses and then you fill in with other passages to illustrate the doctrine. But you never fill in with Isaiah 50, end of 52 and Isaiah 53. It is that vivid. To, to anybody else who's not Jewish, I tell you that, that uh, I've experienced something in my life, and it is, it is an experience. And I've seen what's happened in my life. My family was very concerned. They were secular Jews, so they didn't disown me as like happens in some Jewish families, but they were deeply concerned. Now, after, after uh, many years of watching my life, and thinking the whole thing was going to come collapsing down. And watching the relationship with my wife and my children, and watching the relationship of my siblings with their spouses and their children, and my cousins with their spouses and their children, 
my, my parents have come to see that there is some real richness here. So much so that my mother at the age of 70, she accepted Jesus as, as her Messiah. And I'm still praying for my father, who's now 85. And, and so, um, uh, I ask you to read the New Testament twice. To the skeptic, you can't get through the New Testament twice in sincere reading without becoming a Christian. Because as you're reading it, if you say, Lord, if this is true, show me. Show me your truth. And just start reading. It means Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Start reading. And you read through Revelation chapter 22. You do this a second time. Sometime on the second time, it's going to hit you. The Spirit of God will fall upon you. And you will experience a treasure in Jesus Christ. It is not a domination. Domination is foreign to the Gospel. It is purely out of a love for Him that I do what I do. That I show up to a place like this and share about Jesus Christ. It is out of my love for Him. I don't get paid for this. I don't get any honorarium for this. I don't accept any honorarium for this. I do this out of a love for my Lord Jesus. Because I know what He's done in my life. And I invite you to share that. The only response I have is to pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your creation is a wonderful and mysterious thing. We give you thanks that we can observe it and, uh, and see you in it. We give you thanks for men and women who proclaim the gospel. We give you thanks for Dr. Tour, who in modesty and humility have sought you in all that he has done. We pray a blessing on this night and pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us always that we might speak your truth every day. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Dr. Ford, thank you so much for